Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, we had record high closes today in the S&P 500, the NASDAQ composite. Dow Jones, not quite a new record, but still up better than 300 points, 301.13 to be precise. Of course, all of the headlines and President Trump, uh, they're going to be claiming that the reason that we had these surging stock prices is because we had a stronger than expected jobs report. We got the... Uh, October non-farm payroll report that came out this morning and was better than expected. You had Larry Kudlow out there talking about how this is a fantastic jobs report. It basically shows how we have this great economy, the greatest economy in the history of America. And that's the reason that the stock market is making record highs because we have this great economy. Well, first of all, the jobs report is really not that great. Sure, it was stronger than expected, but that's not why the stock market went up today. I mean, we had other economic data that came out that was weaker than expected. And so it was an overall mixed bag. In fact, the Atlanta Fed came out today and downwardly revised their forecast for Q4 GDP from 1.5 down to 1.1. And I think the New York Fed is actually below one in its forecast for fourth quarter GDP. So hardly the strongest economy in history, yet the markets and President Trump are certainly celebrating uh, like the economy was strong. But let me get to the tail of the tape first in the job report, because we were looking for a weak number, right? So the bar was pretty low. Right. The consensus was for 90,000 non-farm payroll jobs. And one of the reason was because of the striking GM workers. So they were going to be subtracted uh, from the numbers. So that was already you know, baked into the cake. And we ended up getting 128,000 jobs. So, uh, you know, nicely above those diminished expectations. But probably more significantly, they went back and upwardly revised the number they told us for uh, the prior month, which was originally reported at plus 136,000. Now the government claims it was plus 180,000. And of course, it's an exact number, right? It's not 180,003, right? I mean, it was 136,000 even. Now it's 180,000 even. Uh, the, 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 what, what we got this month was 128,000 even. Of course, the reason the numbers are always even is because they make them up, right? I mean, they don't really know. 
exactly how many jobs are created. It is a guess. And the guesstimates are always subject to major revisions. Remember, it wasn't that long ago where the government came back and they said, oh, we overestimated the jobs from the prior year by over 500,000 jobs, meaning on average, every month overestimated the number of jobs created by about 50,000 jobs. Uh, so in other words, the numbers actually mean nothing. They're just a wild guess, and they could be completely wrong, right? But the market still likes to pay a lot of attention to these numbers. But in any event, we did come in better than expected not only with the number of jobs created in the current month, but in revisions to the previous month. Unemployment rate held steady at 3.6%, or not steady, that's a notch above the 3.5% from the prior month, but it is in line with what the estimate was. Private payrolls, again, up more than expected, up 131,000 versus an estimate of 90,000. Uh, but uh, the prior month's 114,000, that was revised all the way up to 167,000 jobs. Again, still, this is not a tremendous number of jobs, but it's more than what they had forecast. Manufacturing was supposed to lose 50,000 jobs, again, because of the uh, GM strike. But instead, we just lost 36,000 jobs. Uh, the prior month's loss was widened from minus 2,000 to minus 4,000. Another strong number was the labor force participation rate, which had been at 63.2, was expected to notch down to 63.1. Instead, it went the other way and notched up to 63.3. All the other numbers in line with estimates, uh, increase in average hourly earnings, 0.2, uh, a little bit better than the zero from the prior month, but in line with estimates year over year, gain of uh, 3%, exactly what they thought, and the uh, uh, work week uh, unchanged at 34.4. But this number uh, was seen as being a positive number, right? But as I said, this is not the only economic number that came out. And again, we are losing manufacturing jobs, right? Uh, we are gaining low-paying service sector jobs. This is the trend that has been in existence for quite some time. It's the trend that Donald Trump correctly criticized uh, as a candidate, but now he heralds it as a great economy when he's the president. And the exact same thing is happening on his watch as what was happening on other watches. The manufacturing economy continues to shrink. We continue to lose goods uh, producing jobs. And we replace them with service sector jobs, low-paying and, in many cases, part-time type jobs. But the other economic news that came out today in manufacturing that also helped uh, prompt the uh, downward revisions to Q4 GDP was the manufacturing numbers. We got the ISM manufacturing uh, index for October, and the prior month was 478 which was a contraction. You know, anything below 50 is a contraction in manufacturing. And we had had two consecutive months below 50. And the forecast was for a third consecutive month below 50. But they were looking for 49.3. So a bit of a rebound from the 47.8 from the prior month. And we did rebound, but only up to 48.3. So not nearly as large a rebound as has been forecast. And still the third consecutive month of declining manufacturing. So the underlying economy is weak. 
despite these job numbers that would indicate maybe a stronger uh, employment market than had been forecast. But again, you got to take these numbers with a grain of salt because they are subject to rather significant revisions. Also, we got more bad economic news on manufacturing yesterday when we got the Chicago PMI for October. And the prior month was 47.1, which again is in contraction territory. And the consensus was for a slight improvement up to 48.3. Still contraction, but contracting at a slower rate. And instead, the number plunged all the way down to 43.2 for the PMI. Now, you have to go all the way back to December of 2015, you know, when Barack Obama was still president, to find a Chicago PMI as low as the one that we just got. But I think more significantly, if you look at the complete decline over the last eight months, the magnitude of this drop in the Chicago PMI. The last time we saw a drop that big was 39 years ago. It was in 1980, summer of 1980. That's how far back you have to go to see that big a drop in the Chicago PMI. And within a year of that drop, we were in the worst recession since the Great Depression, at least at that time, right? The the recession of 81-82 in Reagan's first term that at the time was the worst recession since the depression. Now, I think the contraction in the 2008 financial crisis was worse than that. But we now have a contraction in the PMI that was last seen at the onset of a severe recession, yet you have Donald Trump claiming that now it's happening during the greatest economy in the history of our country. I think the real reason that the markets are rising is because of the Fed. I spoke about the rate cut that we got on uh, Wednesday, where the Fed lowered interest rates now for the third time down to one and a half percent. But even more bullish for the markets was the Fed or basically Powell stating that the Fed doesn't care if inflation really moves up. They're not going to raise rates that rate hikes are the furthest thing from their mind. They're not even considering raising rates right now. So the only thing that they'll do is cut rates or leave them alone. And that the only thing that would cause them to consider a rate hike would be a substantial, a very substantial move up in inflation that was sustained. And then if that happened, they wouldn't just immediately raise rates. They would consider the possibility of maybe raising rates. So this is a very dovish stance for the Fed to take. Probably the most dovish stance I've ever seen the Fed take with respect to its supposed tolerance for inflation. Because in the past, the Fed always pretended it would be more vigilant and it would be more proactive when it came to inflation, right? That it wouldn't you know, wait to see the, the whites of inflation's eyes. I mean, it would fire if you know, it believed there was an inflation threat, but it didn't actually believe that one existed. But now the Fed is basically saying, look, we are going to wait until inflation is clearly a problem, right, before we even think about doing something about it. So this is a green light, right, to the stock market. Hey, don't worry. The Fed has got your back. We got the pal put in place by stocks. But it's not just the rate cuts. 
It's QE4, right? The Fed could deny that they're doing quantitative easing, but they can't hide the numbers. They can't hide their balance sheet. We got the Fed's balance sheet on Thursday, as we do every week. And I suggest that everybody, you know, take a look at the balance sheet on Thursday afternoon. Now, of course, if you don't look, I will bring it to your attention on this podcast. But the uh, the balance sheet rose in the most recent week by $51.1 billion. And if you remember, on my last podcast, I said that I thought when we got the balance sheet numbers for the previous week, I expected a big jump. And that's exactly what we got, uh, a $51.1 billion increase. And the balance sheet now is above $4 trillion. $4.02 trillion. The balance sheet has now grown by over $250 billion. That is a quarter of a trillion dollars in the last seven weeks. That is a lot of quantitative easing, right? The Fed is expanding its balance sheet right now at about twice the pace that it was expanding its balance sheet when it was doing QE3. So QE4, whether they admit it or not, is much, much bigger than QE3, and it is going to continue, and it is going to accelerate. And that is what is driving the stock market. Despite the fact that the economic data is deteriorating, despite the fact that corporate earnings are falling, it is the Fed that is pushing this market to new highs by cutting interest rates, by indicating to the markets that they don't have to worry about rate hikes no matter what happens with inflation. The Fed's not going to raise interest rates. Oh, and by the way, they're doing quantitative easing, and they're going to print as much money as they have to to keep uh, the markets going up and to keep the economy propped up. Because you have to ask yourself, how would things be different today had the Fed not expanded its balance sheet by a quarter of a trillion dollars in the last seven weeks, right? Because obviously the Fed bought something for all that money printing. In fact, if you look at the money supply for the most recent week, and again, I said that we got to start watching the money supply numbers. They're going to be very, very important. The markets don't care about them now, but they're going to care. Money supply was up $43.1 billion last week, right? So what is the Fed buying for all this money? Right? They are buying new highs in the stock market, and they're propping up the economy artificially if the Fed had not done this. right? If the Fed had stayed out of the repo market and just let the free market function, short-term interest rates would be much higher than they are now. And the stock market would be much lower as a result. And economic activity. Uh, would have been reduced, right? A lot of these numbers would look a lot worse, but for what the Fed did. Now, that doesn't mean the Fed made the problem better. No, the Fed is just papering over the problem, making it harder to see the problem as the problem gets even worse. But it enables Trump to try to take credit for the new highs in the stock market or what's happening in the economy. But the credit really goes to the Fed, although I wouldn't say it's credit, it's blame. Because the Fed is not doing something good, they are doing something terribly bad. You know, while I'm on the subject of things that are terribly bad, my son Spencer reminded me today uh, that the national debt broke through 23 
trillion dollars, another milestone of debt. Uh, and, you know, of course, when Donald Trump ran for office, he was very critical of the mountain of debt that piled up under Barack Obama. In fact, when Donald Trump took office, I think the national debt was just under $20 trillion. And now uh, Donald Trump has added over $3 trillion in debt in less than three years as president. So that's better than a trillion dollars a year, except it's uphill from here. The pace at which the debt is accumulating is going to be quicker. So we're going to move from 23 trillion to 24 trillion much faster than we moved from 22 trillion to 23 trillion, which is part of the reason why the Federal Reserve is back to quantitative easing because they are monetizing all of this government debt that the private sector can't absorb, uh, at least not at these ridiculously low interest rates that are necessary to keep some of the air from coming out of the bubble. And so that's why the Fed is enabling these massive deficits by going back to quantitative easing. And of course, while I'm continuing on the subject of stuff that is really, really bad, Elizabeth Warren came out today and released the details of how she's going to pay for uh, Medicare for All. You know, Elizabeth Warren, in the last debate, she was under a lot of criticism from other Democratic candidates for not being honest about how she was going to pay for Medicare for All. Right? Other uh, Democrats are calling her out. Look, you're going to raise taxes on the middle class. You have to in order to pay for health care for all. And Warren was saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to raise taxes on the rich. And so today she actually reduced her plan for paying for Medicare for all without taxing the middle class at all. Right. And I read through at least the highlights of her plan. And it is a recipe for disaster. And of course, it is not going to achieve what Warren believes, but at least on the surface, right, it is not calling for higher taxes directly on uh, the middle class. So what is Warren proposing? Well, first of all, one of the things that she's proposing is that to require all employers who are currently uh, providing health care to their workers, health insurance. Now, of course, companies do not provide health care to their workers, the workers earn their health care or their health insurance, right? They are receiving their health insurance as part of their compensation package. So the employers are not just not being generous and just giving their workers health insurance. No, their workers are earning their health insurance. They're just accepting compensation or part of their compensation. Instead of accepting it in wages, they are accepting it in insurance. And if their employer wasn't providing them with insurance, they would just be paying them higher wages, right? So the worker, it's nothing that they're getting for free. But the reason that so many employees want to be paid in insurance and not money is because if they get paid in money, they have to get taxed on it. They have to pay the payroll tax on it. They have to pay the income tax. But if their employer compensates them with health insurance, that benefit is free of taxation. So rather than earn money, pay taxes on it, and then go buy their own health insurance, the way they buy their own auto insurance or fire insurance, they would rather get the insurance policy tax-free from their employer. And this whole system is 
simply because of the tax code. If it wasn't for the tax code, individuals would buy their own insurance, uh, health insurance, the way they buy their own auto and fire and life insurance. And I believe it would be a lot less expensive if they did it that way. And it wouldn't be tied to your employment the way it is now. But in any way, what Warren wants to do is she wants to say that any companies that are now providing as part of their compensation to their workers, if you're providing insurance, that you now stop providing that insurance. And instead, you take that money that you were using to buy these private insurance policies and you just pay it in the tax to the government, right? So it's not costing the workers anything. They're just losing their private insurance and getting Medicare for all. Now, I would consider that a big loss because I'm sure that the quality of care that they're going to get from the government is going to be diminished from what they're getting now uh, through their private policies. And of course, what Warren is saying is that it's not going to cost any more because the companies are just going to add up you know, what it costs to uh, I- insure all their employees and then pay that as a tax instead. And in fact, she's even saying you can take a discount. I think it was like maybe a 2% discount. Like the government's going to save you money, right? The government is going to provide these companies with insurance that's going to be a better deal than the one that they were buying in the market, right? So, hey, everybody's going to save money. And so this is going to be great. Of course, what Elizabeth Warren doesn't understand, and of course, there's a lot of things that she doesn't understand, right? I mean, I could, I could do podcast after podcast for the rest of the year going over things that Elizabeth Warren doesn't understand. In fact, if I did a podcast about what Elizabeth Warren does understand, it would be the shortest podcast I've ever recorded. But in any event, one of the things she doesn't understand, one of the multiple things, is that her plan has implied within it a massive moral hazard because one of the things that she's touting about how great her plan is is there's zero copay and there's zero deductible right well the reason you have copays and deductibles is to prevent people from overutilizing the insurance right they need to have some skin in the game right if they're going to go to the doctor they got to pay something right if you make it so it costs nothing well people will go to the doctor every time they sneeze I mean, there will be people under Medicare for all that go to the doctor because they have nothing better to do that day. They'll just go for the hell of it, right? And so now everything is going to get clogged up, right? You're going to have so much demand for medical services because it costs nothing, right? Nobody has to pay anything uh, no matter what they do. So this is going to help drive uh, medical costs up even faster than they're already going up. So whatever employers start out at, right, when they buy into this government program, the annual costs are going to rise even faster than the costs are rising now. But one of the other things that Warren said or wrote in her plan was that the smaller employers who are not currently providing health insurance to their workers, right, because their workers, I guess, don't produce enough productivity to be to to be able to earn health insurance in addition to their wages, right? So the small companies that don't provide any, well, then they're not going to have to, right? Their workers are just going to get covered for free. And so what Warren is actually doing is creating a big incentive for small companies not to grow, 
for small companies to stay small. I forget what the cutoff was. Maybe it was 50 employees or whatever it is where you're required to, to provide insurance or you're forced to pay your workers in health insurance rather than wages. See, that's what's doing. Again, the employer isn't providing anything. The employee is earning it. And when you require an employer to provide health insurance, you're also requiring them to provide lower wages, right? The, you're substituting insurance for wages. And so the worker gets insurance, but he, he ends up getting lower wages or lower or fewer vacation days or whatever it is, right? There's Because the worker has to earn whatever he's paid. And if the government mandates that the payment has to be skewed in a particular way, well, then it's just the package, the overall pay package has to be adjusted so that the worker covers what he's earning through his productivity. Otherwise, he's out of a job because employers are not hiring people to lose money. You have to make a profit on everybody you hire. Otherwise, you don't hire them. Right. Uh, but what this plan does is it creates an incentive to remain small, because if I have, you know, 20 or 30 employees, I don't have to provide any insurance at all. Right. Why? Because they're, my employees are going to get the coverage for nothing. Right? So this, again, is another moral hazard to prevent businesses from growing. Nobody is going to hire that 50th employee. And it's going to give these smaller companies you know, an advantage in that they don't have to pay anything uh, for the health insurance that their employees are going to get for government. Right. So now where is Elizabeth Warren going to get all this money right, to cover the insurance for all the people whose employers are contributing nothing? And that's where, you know, the wealthy come in, right? That's where the millionaires and the billionaires come in. Number one is she has a financial transaction tax of one-tenth of one percent every time you buy or sell a stock or a bond or a derivative, which in the scheme of things, if you're a long-term investor and you buy a stock and you never sell it for 10 years, I suppose that the tax is not that big of a deal. But if you're trading, if you're day trading, it's a huge deal. That tax adds up to a lot of money. And number one, it's going to drive a lot of transactions out of U.S. exchanges completely to avoid the tax. It's also going to result in a lot less trading and a lot less liquidity in a lot of the markets, meaning investors might end up paying higher you know, offers or selling at lower bids when they have to transact. But it also means the transaction tax is going to generate a lot less revenue than Warren thinks because a lot of the transactions that she wants to tax will no longer take place because of avoidance of that tax. But that's just you know a small piece of it. The rest of it comes from the wealth tax. Now, remember, she keeps talking about two cents, right? Elizabeth Warren says, I just want the rich to pay two cents, right, which is 2%. Well, that's for people who have net worths of under a billion. If you had a billion dollar net worth, she was upping it to three cents, three percent. Well, now she's raised her own bid, right? Now the wealth tax is up to six percent. I mean, she's not quite as high as Sanders. I think he's up there at eight percent. I'm sure someone's going to top that bid, or but but she's at six percent now. Six percent a year wealth tax—that's a lot. Especially what after five years, that's thirty percent. So if your wealth remains stagnant for five years, 30% of it goes to the government, right, in the wealth tax. And, of course, you know, if you're forced to liquidate 
6% of your wealth every year, your wealth is probably going to be falling a lot faster than that, you know, because when you have to sell assets, you tend to depress the price. So she's upping her wealth tax to 6%. But more importantly, she wants to increase the capital gains tax to make it the same as ordinary income, which she also wants to raise. But get this, this is the most important part. When it comes to the top 1%, which is, I don't know, incomes above $250,000, which you know is not that much income, especially if you're living in New York or California or someplace like that, right? A high cost part of the country. Not only does she want to tax your actual capital gains, she wants to tax unrealized capital gains. She wants to mark to market the increase in the value of your assets each year and then levy the tax on the increased value even if you haven't actually realized that value by selling the asset. Now, this is an onerous tax. And first of all, it's not even an income tax, right? She wants to have it in there as part of the income tax, but it's not income. I mean, if you own a stock, and it was at $10 a share in the beginning of the year, and it's at $15 at the end of the year. But if I haven't sold it, if I just own the same shares of stock, I haven't made any income. No money has come in. I haven't received a check. I mean, other than my dividends, right, which I've already paid taxes on if the stock paid a dividend, maybe it doesn't pay a dividend. But I have the same number of shares at the end of the year as I had at the beginning of the year. I didn't generate any income, right? I didn't sell them. If you then levy a tax on that paper appreciation, you're not taxing my income. You're just taxing my wealth. You're taxing my stock. You're taxing my property, right? So that's another estate tax. That is an unconstitutional tax because it's a direct tax that is not a portion. But what really Elizabeth Warren is trying to do is have another wealth tax, not just the the 2% or the 6% tax that the really, really rich people, she wants to tax the wealth of the 1%. A lot of the people who are in the top 1%, they have net worths well below $5 million, yet she wants to tax their wealth. She wants to assess a tax on the unrealized gain. And of course, it's easy to do that when it comes to a publicly traded stock, right? Because you have your statement. You can see what it was worth at the end of last year, and then you can see what it's worth at the end of this year, so you know what your gain is. But what if you own a private business? You're going to have to appraise that business every single year? First of all, how much is that appraisal going to cost? And now you're going to have to compare the appraised value at the end of this year to the appraised value at the end of the previous year and then pay a tax on the gain as if you had income when you had none. Where do you get the money to pay the tax? Do you have to then try to sell the, the business? Obviously, if it's a privately held business, there's not a liquid market that you could just get out to pay your tax. But even for the uh, people who own publicly traded stocks, Imagine what's going to happen if everybody has to start liquidating huge portions of their stock portfolios every year to pay these taxes. I mean, obviously, eventually uh, the stock market could crash so much that maybe there won't be any more gains. But of course, if we have massive inflation, which we're going to have, right, the price of everything is going to go up because Warren isn't talking about indexing this for inflation. So even if your gains 
are derived 100% from inflation because money is losing value, not your assets are gaining value. You still have to peel off a good chunk of it and, and pay it to the government every year in tax. And Warren even says that, you know, part of her plan is to spend a lot more money on new IRS agents, right? And, and shift the focus of the IRS so that they don't spend as much time auditing lower income people, right? So maybe it'll be easier for the lower income people to cheat. And she wants to focus all these resources on the top 1% to make sure they are paying these substantially higher taxes that she wants to impose. But this unrealized capital gains tax would be an unmitigated disaster, you know, especially if she compounds it with the increasing the rate on your capital gains. Now, I don't know if she's going to exempt, like, you know, your primary residence. I mean, could you imagine if you have to appraise your house every year and then pay an income tax on the appreciated value of your house, even if you didn't sell it? Right. I mean, now it, it probably won't apply to your primary residence, but it would apply to investment properties. Right. If you own rental properties. Now, of course, the landlords are going to have to pass on the cost of that tax to their tenants by raising prices. Right. How else are they ever going to recover the taxes? That would be another cost of owning rental property. Right. You would have to pay uh, your utilities. You'd have to pay your property taxes. You would have to pay any interest on any money you borrowed. And then you'd have to write a check annually to the government for any appreciation in the paper value of the property. And of course, all of those costs would have to be covered by your tenants. You know, all of this stuff, right? All these taxes on the rich, right? Elizabeth Warren is like, oh, the middle class and the poor, they're not going to pay the taxes. We're just going to tax corporations, right? We're going to tax the rich. Well, where do you think the corporations get the money? Where do you think the rich get the money? If they are getting rich because they are providing goods and services, to customers, well, then they have to increase the cost of those goods and services if the government increases the cost of providing them by increasing the level of taxation. And of course, you know, when you start taxing wealth, whether it's through a wealth tax or an income tax or, or wealth tax disguised as an income tax by taxing unrealized capital gains, you are going at the seed corn. You are destroying the wealth that grows the economy. It is because of accumulated wealth that we get the investments necessary to raise productivity and raise the living standards of the people. Once you start destroying wealth, which is what the taxes that Warren is advocating will do, uh, then you reverse that process. And you know, instead of distributing the wealth, you end up distributing the poverty. You know, One uh, person who's been taken on, Elizabeth Warren, kind of in a high-profile battle of words, is Lee Cooperman, who is a self-made uh, billionaire in the United States. And he takes uh, issue with a lot of the things that Warren is saying, vilifying the rich and how they got lucky and how they didn't really earn that. Uh, and he started a dispute uh, on CNBC by claiming that Warren was shitting all over the American dream. And he's predicting that the stock market will drop by 25% if Warren wins. I mean, first of all, it's going to drop a lot more than 25% if Warren wins. I mean, more like 75%, maybe 80 or 90%. And the only reason it may not drop that much would be because none of her agenda is actually passed, right? So, you know, which would be good news. Or because there's so much inflation that it's impossible for nominal prices to fall that much. But in real terms, that's exactly what would happen. But if Elizabeth Warren was elected and actually was able to implement this agenda, 
it would be an unmitigated disaster. A 25% drop would be nothing. I mean, we're already way more than 25% overvalued. I mean, the stock market's going to go down more than 25% even if Trump gets reelected, let alone a disaster of Elizabeth Warren. But anyway, he you know started this battle, and maybe I think Elizabeth Warren has been uh, responding on Twitter uh, to Cooperman. And anyway, that prompted Cooperman to write this letter, this long letter to Warren, which I think you know Warren made public because I was able to read it. I think he sent it to her, and then she published it. Right. And I think she likes the fact that a billionaire uh, is is upset right, and is about her because, you know, that, hey, yeah, she wants to ruffle those fetters. Right. I mean, she's really brave. She's willing to take on the billionaires. Well, when it comes to politics, right, the easiest thing you could do is take on the billionaires. That doesn't take any courage. What takes courage is to take on the entitlements that benefit the middle class, because that's where all the votes are. I mean, how many votes do you lose by alienating the billionaires? I mean, there's not many of those. So it doesn't take any political courage at all to do what Elizabeth Warren is doing. That's the coward's way out. But, of course, that's, you know, the route that politicians love to take. But anyway, he, you know, wrote this letter that she releases. And if you read his letter, I mean, Cooperman basically says, look, I'm fine with a progressive income tax. I like that. You know, I'm okay paying a little bit more income tax. In fact, he writes in his letter that he's perfectly fine. He's perfectly content paying 50% tax. He says, I'm happy to work half the year for myself and the other half of the year for the government. Well, speak for yourself. I'm not happy about that. I wasn't happy about that when I was doing it. Right for a while, that was me. I was working. I I was earning a good income. Right, I'm not you know claiming poverty, but I didn't like the fact that half of my income was taken from me by force by the government. I did not feel free paying that type of confiscatory tax. Right, I mean, if you're a religious person, if you look at the Bible, right, ten percent. Right, that's basically what. They, the Bible says, okay, tied 10%. All right, that's reasonable. 10%, you know, 90% you get to keep, 10%. Okay, I could, I, I could live with that, 10%. 50%, 50%, that's not freedom. Look, if you study history and you, you look at the medieval serf, right, what defines serfdom? What was the serf, right? The serf worked the land. He was a farmer predominantly, but the land was owned by the lord of the manor, and the serf would have to turn over 25% of his production to that lord. Right? He didn't get to own, he didn't get to keep all of the fruits of his labor. He just got to keep 75% of what he produced, and because he only got to keep 75%, he was a serf, right? And this was considered pretty bad, right? I mean, yo, you know, the Lord has just taken 25% away from you. You're you're left with just 75%. I used to joke for years that my goal in life was to rise to the level of a serf. Like I really aspired to where I can keep as much as a serf did, where I can keep 75% of what I produce. Because I thought that would be great because it was a big improvement over, you know, what I was getting. Right now, you know, I'm living in Puerto Rico and I'm out doing the surf. So I'm finally free. I'm finally living a life where I'm more free than a medieval surf. But if if Leon Cooperman is content 
to be less free than a serf. Okay, that let, let him donate half of his money to the government. But don't speak for the rest of us. But, you know, there's another fact that not a lot of people talk about. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, people could probably call you a racist for even bringing this topic up. But I don't care. You know, people could call me whatever they want. But if you go back and you look at slavery in the United States, because they've done this. They've studied the costs of slavery. And if you go back and you look at how much a slave owner, right, a guy that owned a plantation, how much was spent maintaining the slave, right? Because when you had a slave, you had to feed them, you had to clothe them, you had to take care of them when they got sick, you had to have a place for them to sleep, right? So they, they didn't work for nothing. You had, a, you had overhead, right? You had to, you know, maintain uh, that slave. And, you, you know, they had they needed to be rested. They couldn't work 24-7. You had to give them a little leisure, right? And, you know, when they were really, really young, they were too young to work. And at some point when they got older, right, I mean, they couldn't work anymore. You didn't just, they didn't just shoot them, right? When slaves got too old to work, the, the masters took care of them until they died, right? They, they didn't make them work. So there was kind of a little bit of a retirement uh, built into it, right? Not that I'm saying it was good to be a slave. I'm just looking at the economics of the slave owner. And basically, if you look back at it, a slave owner spent about 90% of a slave's economic output on the slave himself, on maintaining that slave. So the profit margin was about 10%. So if a slave produced a dollar's worth of output on the plantation, it would cost the slave owner 90 cents to feed them and clothe them and take care of them. And he got a 10% profit. So the point I'm trying to make is that serfs, they got 75% of what they produced, and slaves got 90% of what they produced. Yet Cooperman is okay with 50%, which makes him worse than a serf and worse than a slave. Now, of course, the slave didn't have you know, his freedom. He couldn't go where he wanted to go. He, you know, he was still a slave. I'm not saying that slavery was better. I'm just looking at the percentage of their economic output that they got to keep. And one of the reasons that this it costs so much to maintain a slave was that the slaves weren't very hardworking. And again, I, you know, I'm not saying the slaves were lazy. I'm just saying they weren't complete idiots. If I was a slave, I would do as little work as possible, right? I, why would I want to work hard? What's in it for me? I don't get paid anymore for working harder. I'm getting paid nothing. I'm going to do the minimum I can and not get whipped, right? I mean, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, get along. That's why slavery was so inefficient. It is much cheaper. Forgetting about the humanitarian aspects of all this, right? And the fact that slavery is morally wrong. From an economic perspective, if you have a worker who you pay wages and who is incentivized to work harder to earn more wages, it is more economical to employ free labor than to own slaves and pay slaves to work because they're not going to be as productive as free people who are working in an incentive-based system. And that's one of the reasons that slavery was dying out because economically it didn't make sense. Free market capitalism where you have employees being hired privately in competition with one another, trying to work as hard as they can, to earn as much as they can, those voluntary interactions where employers willingly pay willing employees for free labor is beneficial to everybody. The worker has his freedom. He earns more money. 
and the employer has a more productive worker where he doesn't have to return 90% of the output uh, back to the worker. But the point is for Cooperman to be saying that he's okay living in a country where you have to work half the year for the government and then you can work the other half for yourself is not the definition of living in a free country and it's not the definition of freedom, right? Government should take a very small part of your income. The vast majority of your income should belong to you. That's what freedom is, right? It's freedom to uh, enjoy the fruits of your labor and to uh, consume those fruits uh, based on your own terms. And if you want to contribute to private charities, then that's your you know, obligation or that's your option to do that. You can do that if you want, but other, you, the government can't take from you your own property at the point of a gun, which is basically what they want to do. When the government is taking half of what you earn, the government basically owns you. You're no better than a slave on a gigantic plantation. But I tell you, if Warren wins, and she's, you know, she's like the front runner right now, right? It's either her or Biden. But if she wins and any of this crap becomes law, it's going to get pretty crowded down here in Puerto Rico because I can't imagine anybody not wanting to come down to Puerto Rico to escape these taxes. And in fact, I would get down here now just in case something changes, just so you're grandfathered in because this is a serious threat. I mean, if you have to appraise all of your assets on an annual basis and pay a tax on the unrealized appreciation. And of course, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't point out is sometimes you can own a stock that goes way up and then comes crashing down, right? And you never sell it. So you never actually make any money. You just you just round trip it. You ride it all the way up and you ride it all the way down. I mean, that's going to happen to a lot of people who own Bitcoin. But can you imagine if during a bubble on the way up, you have to keep paying income taxes on the paper gains of your asset during the bubble? And then when it crashes and you actually made no money at all, but you have this huge tax bill, because this would this would apply to cryptocurrencies, too. Right. If you're in the top one percent and you happen to own Bitcoin, you know, you've got to pay a capital gains tax on the appreciated value of your Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrencies, even if you haven't sold them. And of course, how do you get the cash? To pay the tax, well, you've got to either sell some of your Bitcoin to generate the liquidity to pay the tax. And if enough people do that, right, it pushes the price down or you've just got to pay the tax through some other source. But if you do that and you never sell and then the price comes crashing down, you've paid all this income taxes on something that ultimately not only didn't produce any income, but actually produced a large loss. But, you know, one thing about Elizabeth Warren, though, I mean, she is consistent, right? Not only are her economic policies nuts all of her social policies are nuts right there's nothing about this woman uh that makes sense which is probably why she's so popular she has such ridiculous positions but probably the most ridiculous of all has to do with the way she panders to the uh, lbgqt whatever community right because she has to you know they're the latest and the newest victims right and everybody has to show how tolerant they are and, and so you know the the craziest part about this is 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 you know the 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 people the men who self-identify as a woman and and claiming that any man who self-identifies as a woman you got to kind of take their word for it right there's no requirement that 
they pass some type of psychological test or some doctor verifies that, you know, they've got some certain hormone level in their bodies or that they're any way more female than male. There's none of that because that would be discriminatory. You can't do that. So anybody who just wants to identify as a woman, well, then that person is a woman and they get all the special treatment, right, that we now give women because they're part of the victims, right? You're a woman. And so you can sign on, right? So if you're just a, wh- a straight white guy, right, you don't you don't qualify for any victim status. Well, just identify as a woman and now all of a sudden you can get yourself into that category and start getting benefits that have been reserved for women. Uh, but one of the crazier aspects, and I was reading this story, and apparently it's already happening to some extent, uh, but not maybe to an extent uh, that Warren wants, but it has to do with prisoners, male prisoners who self-identify as women, right? They get to go to a women's prison and not a men's prison. I mean, how stupid is that? I mean, first of all, if any guy was given the option, right? You're, you, you've been arrested, you're, you've been convicted, you're going to jail five years, 10 years. And if they ask you, do you want to go to the men's prison or do you want to go to the women's prison? Who's not going to choose women? Every guy, if given the opportunity, is going to want to go in the women's prison. Maybe except the gay guys, right? But every straight guy is going to want to go into the women's prison, right? I mean, for sure. So all he has to do is say, yeah, I'm a woman, and you get to go to the women's prison. I mean, is this nuts? Elizabeth Warren is in favor of this. She's in favor of letting men decide that they want to be imprisoned in women's prisons. And it doesn't even matter what they're convicted of. What if you are a convicted rapist, right? You're a serial rapist, and you get 20 years, 50 years in jail. And they ask you, do you want to go into the men's prison or the women's prison. I mean, come on. I mean, I bet there's a lot of rapists. If they knew that they were going to be incarcerated in the women's prison, they would just surrender. I mean, they would just give themselves up. I mean, talk about shooting fish in a barrel. I'm a rapist and I'm in prison with a bunch of women. They can't go anywhere. Right? I mean, I mean, think about that. I mean, obviously, they are throwing these women under the bus. I mean, literally, because what's going to happen to the women? You put men in a women's prison, what's going to happen to those women? I mean, they're going to get raped, obviously. I mean, look, in America, right? I mean, this is a fact that not a lot of people know. But in America, this is the only country where more men are raped every year than women. Now, why is that, right? How can men be raped more than women? It's prisons. All these guys are getting raped in prison by guys. Now, obviously, if these guys could rape women, they would rape women, right? The only reason they're raping men is there's no women around. So they have to resort to raping men. I mean, I suppose ultimately this is going to be great for the guys, right, who are in prison because now they're going to get to rape women instead of men, right? But it's even a bigger win for the guys who are getting raped because now they're off the hook. Because they're not going to get raped anymore because there's going to be women that get raped instead. But this is a terrible thing for women. And obviously, eventually, if this actually is allowed to happen, if Elizabeth Warren gets her way and men can go in women's prisons just by self-identifying as a woman, there's going to be no women's prisons. Because every guy is going to want to go to the women's prisons and then the women's prisons are going to be too crowded with guys. So they're going to have to basically make all the prisons co-ed. Uh, which is going to be a disaster for women, and I guess it's going to be uh, pretty good for the men.
But it's not just there. I mean, look at what's going on in sports, too, right? Because now when you have these guys that want to identify as women, right, the, the liberals are saying, well, then they can compete in women's sports. I mean, if they say they're a woman, they're a woman. But the problem is they're not. They're a man. Even if they want to believe they're a woman, they, they've got the body of a man. They've got the, the, the muscles of a man. I mean, they could beat women, and you're starting to see this in track and field, and, you know, men are coming in and, and breaking the records. I mean, apparently I've read that pretty much any good high school athlete in track can, can set a world record for women in running, right? So, I mean, if men start entering women's sports, they're going to dominate. I mean, obviously this is going to create a tremendous amount of tension uh, in, uh, in the liberal community between, you know, people advocating for women and people advocating for LBGQ, uh, because if they don't do this, I mean, think about tennis, right? I mean, women's tennis, you win the U.S. Open, you win uh, Wimbledon. I mean, it's like a $3 million prize. The women and the men get the same prize, right? Well, what if you are a tennis player, male tennis player, and you're like ranked number 1,000 in the world? Right? You're still a great player to be number 1,000, right? You're a really good player. But 99, 999 other guys can beat you, right? So if you're ranked number 1,000, you're not going to win a major tournament. You're not going to get one of those $3 million checks. But what if you just identify as a woman and just enter in the women's? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be the champion. I mean, I bet the number 1,000 guy can beat in straight sets the, the, the top woman, right? And so, I mean, that's what I would do. I mean, I think if I was the number 1,000 ranked guy, I would just enter the women's tournament. I would just say, I identify as a woman, and let's see what they do. Right? They just, they're going to let you play, and then you're going to win. You're going to win every single Grand Slam tournament. The only problem is, once the 1,000th guy enters and wins, well, number 999 is going to enter the women's tournament. And then number 998, and pretty soon... The men's tournament and the women's tournament are going to be the same. There won't be any women in women's tennis because all the men will enter to get the prize money. Right? That's what is going to happen. You know, I mean, and you don't even have to, you know, you don't have to, you know, change your lifestyle. You could just say identify as a woman. I mean, even if you're publicly out there, you know, dating women or maybe if you're married, look, you could just say, I identify as a lesbian woman, right? I am a woman, but I'm also a lesbian. That gives you double victim status, right? I'm not only, you know, a, a woman trapped in a man's body, but I'm a lesbian woman trapped in a man's body. And so now I, I, I know I've got both. So I, you can keep on dating women and, you know, publicly, you know, acting as if you're a man, but claiming you identify as a lesbian woman, right? And now you get to play tennis as a woman, and you get to you get to win all the tournaments. So this is where we're going, right? We're going to completely destroy women's sports if we can say that any man can identify as a woman, and you can't challenge that assertion based on any kind of medical criteria. You just have to take them at their word because otherwise it's discrimination. So at some point, we're going to start to see this infighting you know, as, as as this whole coalition crumbles because everybody is trying to get these special rights. And so everybody has to defend the special rights of everybody else to keep this crazy coalition in place. But in the meantime, uh, it's ultimately going to fall apart. And the fact that Elizabeth Warren signs on to all this nonsense, 
right? No matter what it is, right? Any kind of populist BS cause, whether it's economic or social, Elizabeth Warren is you know, is leading the charge. She has to grab onto everything because she's afraid of alienating anybody in that coalition. Thank you.